Amen. Well, this morning we're continuing on in a part two of an epic sermon series. We're back in Colossians. We started last week with a very controversial subject. Ascetism, nominalism, and modern... No, it wasn't anything like that. It was very simple. Tattoos, beer, and Jesus. And boy, we packed it out last week. People wanted to know, what is going on with tattoos, beers, and Jesus? So, we found out that we really couldn't finish last week. So, we're continuing today. And you have your sermon notes. They may look similar to last week's, but I guarantee you they're different. So please take out those sermon notes and be ready to scratch and, and write things down. So we're back in the book of Colossians, Tattoo, Beer, and Jesus. Shadow versus Substance. Now the question that I received that was very interesting in connection to um, last week's was, uh, or, or one of the questions I received, was pertaining to legalism. And there was a challenge here about the law versus Jesus Christ. And it really isn't an issue of the law versus Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ completing the law. We used a a beautiful uh, illustration about dental work. And how when you get a crown, you used to get a temporary. Now you can get that magic presto gesto stuff where they charge you, you know, when you're firstborn, and then they give you a permanent crown right there. Um, gentry, good luck. Okay, they'll be coming for you soon. So you used to get a temporary, and I talked a little bit about how, who in their right mind would refuse the permanent one when it's done? So, oh no, this is, this is fine, this will work, I got it, it's good. And uh, eventually temporaries fail, right? And I shared a little bit about one time when I was... Um, in a movie theater, and I was chewing on some red vines with a temporary, and I never knew red vines could be that crunchy. So, uh, talking about that the temporary crown serves a purpose, but it's imperfect. It really fits this idea that it's the shadow. These are the words that Paul uses to ascribe this difference in the point that he's trying to get across. In an area of, of history, I, I want to go back now and I want to give you an understanding about the church at Colossae. I didn't do this last week and maybe this will help you understand that this is a young church and what's happening here and the reason that Paul is compelled to write to them is that there have been those that have risen up as teachers, self-proclaimed teachers that have wormed their way in and have started to impose the old traditions and the old laws. And so Paul hears about it and he sees the death of a church starting to happen. And he writes to them and he says, why would you put yourself under that old tradition? It's a shadow. You now have what? You now have substance in Christ. And so we'll get to it in just a minute and read the passage one more time, but I wanted to give you a little bit of the background to shape what you're hearing and how that's going to pertain to us today. Now what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to focus a little bit from, from a little bit different angle on the same passage, and then we're going to use an illustration again. Last week we used the illustration of is it okay to get a tattoo as a believer of Jesus Christ, and today we're going to talk about is it okay to drink a beer as a believer in Jesus Christ. So all the beer drinkers are going to go on this side of the room. 
And the teetotal, no, we're not going to do that, okay. We had this statement last week, that the internal consumed with the external is the problem. That when my spirit, my soul becomes so consumed that the priority now becomes satisfying these self-proclaimed people, these judgmental people, then it becomes death for me. Now the program has failed. Now the people have failed. Does that make sense? This is where we start to deviate, and yet we always have this pressure, don't we? We're built into it. From the time you started preschool, you had authority over you. When you were in kindergarten, you didn't get to opt out of nap time to go paint. You had to lay down. And how many of you were like, never tired? Okay, how many of you always took nap time? How many of you would like nap time right now? Yes, I can tell. Let's keep moving. Superficial people tend to be consumed by the superficial. And we'll get a little bit into um, uh, blowing that out so that we can truly understand the impetus behind that statement. Then when we talk about the Pharisees, and again, uh, uh, Carly chose some songs here that are just so pertinent to what we're studying today. That Jesus died for the Pharisee just as much as he died for you and I. But Jesus continually, and we'll hear some scripture today speaking to this, Jesus continually was talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the danger of their message. The same holds true with what we're looking at today and what Paul is talking about. And specifically in some of these passages or in some of these verses within the passage we're looking at, we see words such as do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. And yet he's saying this is coming from superficial people. So why would you listen to that? And therein lies the challenge. Because we know that God has a standard for us, right? We know that God has a holy standard for our life. So who do we listen to? That's a great question. Let's move forward here. This morning, I want you to think about this concept. Precious but powerless. That's part two where we are today with this message. Precious but powerless. That the law was precious, it served a purpose, it helped. But it truly is powerless when it comes to really living underneath God's um, plan, God's will, Jesus Christ's focus for our life. Let me give you a visual of this. The law gives an appearance of wisdom, yet it is powerless in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These are Paul's words. This is not Pastor Jared standing up here just kind of pontificating. I'm borrowing from Paul's words straight from verse 23. So let me give you a visual to help you understand precious but powerless. There you go. So when you walk away today, I want you to think about this when you think about living under the law today instead of Jesus Christ. It sure looks cute, but he ain't going to lift that. He's just not going to do it, no matter how hard he tries. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Let's, let's read this together. It says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. There are, these are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Asceticism is a word for false humility. Many of your translations have that. Going on in detail about visions, 
puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, who is Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in the promoting, in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the whole body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That is the challenge this morning as we look at it. I'm sorry, I should have given you the second slide there as I was reading it. But this morning, let's go back over some of these things that Paul was talking about. External practices. How do we worship God? Who gets to make those rules? Who gets to determine what is acceptable worship and acceptable Christian living? And so individuals, since the dawn of the law, have come along and they've said, do not taste, do not touch, do not handle. But God also said what? Do not covet, right? Do not forsake the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Thou shalt have no other what? Gods before me. Thou shalt not make any graven image. Thou shalt not murder. We're, you know, everybody's pretty much down with that one, Okay. But isn't it fascinating that thou shalt not murder and honor your mother and father is and and keep the Sabbath holy. You know, I, I think if we just start with keep the Sabbath holy, that would be a big challenge for us. We live in a society that tells us we deserve our weekends, we deserve our getaways, we de- and then we come back and we're exhausted from all of our all of our play. And we're not keeping the Sabbath holy. And we wonder why we don't feel connected to God. Because we don't have any determinative time. In your marriages or your relationships, just coming off Valentine's Day last week, if you never spend time, purposeful time with your partner, are you going to feel connected? Are you going to have a strong marriage? You're not. See, Sabbath is kind of like date night with your partner. You plan it. It's purposeful. You set it aside. You don't let anything interfere with it. And when you do, what happens? The relationship starts to suffer. So it's something that I think we can look at and say, okay, God had purpose and He had intentionality when He set up these standards. And we'll talk a little bit about where it went south from there. So individuals come along and they they start talking about, from a human perspective and human precepts and teachings, they start talking about the law, asceticism, Festivals, food and drink, misguided spiritual practices, and arrogance. And I have this LOTP up there. Uh, I was sharing with an individual, a friend of mine, um, somebody that I had mentored a while ago, and they're in seminary now, and they put up a posting uh, of some, some challenging theological issues, and I put LOTP up there, and sure enough, uh, uh, somebody that I know is brilliant Bible scholar, um, uh, responded from across the nation all the way from Texas saying, I know I'm, I'm not that bright, but could you please tell me what LOTP is? And I said, ah, I made it up. I don't expect you to know it. Language of the Pharisees. Language of the Pharisees. 
that this idea of human precepts and teachings is really the language of the Pharisees. And why am I emphasizing that? Because that's what you need as a takeaway today. If what we're supposed to learn today, what we're supposed to apply today, is this idea of how do I differentiate what God's standard is for me versus some human precepts, some human conditions, some human laws. How do I do that? You look for that language of the Pharisees. And we talked about it, that it usually has a tone to it, doesn't it? It's a very judgmental, very angry tone. It's a labeling tone. It's not one of love and peace and forbearance and forgiveness and grace and mercy. You see, we can share with people who are struggling in their Christian walk with grace and mercy, just like Christ did. But when we learn those approaches from the language of the Pharisees, we tend to mimic that as well. And that's where the judgmentalism comes in. And this is what Paul's talking about and warning us against. So he says, reject those who disqualify you by prioritizing legalism. Verse 18 specifically speaks to this. You can look in your scripture and it says this, let no one what? Disqualify you. Have you ever been disqualified from something? Right? Have you ever won those McDonald's scratchers? Early on, if you scratched off a certain part of that thing, you didn't get your free cheeseburger. And I remember the amount of disdain and sorrow. I'm still bitter to this day. I've not received any counseling over it. But I was disqualified. There's nothing worse than, than you know you won, and yet you've been disqualified. It was right there for the taking. And yet you've been disqualified. And that's That's Paul's choice word here. Is don't let anybody disqualify you. Disqualify you from what? From the grace and the peace and the life that is in Christ Jesus. There's some serious things at stake here. So asceticism, which is false humility, and I talked about this last week when I referenced John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, that he was a, uh, many people know that he was a pretty evil man. And he was a slave trader in the 18th century. But in his struggle to find God, he saw this asceticism, this false humility, demonstrated. And so he thought, well, that's the way to God. That's what I'll do. And so as a sailor, as a midshipman, he decided never to speak. Because if he didn't speak, he wouldn't what? He wouldn't sin with his tongue. How many of us do those things? And by the way, where would he have learned that? He would have learned that from a certain um, uh, uh, faction of religion that took vows of silence. Right? Now, is a vow of silence something that's wrong? It's sinful? Not necessarily. But when you're trying to use that as the mechanism to change your heart, it's powerless. It's precious, but it's powerless. When you take a vow of silence as an act of worship towards God, not because it was compulsion or it was forced upon you, or that you think taking that vow is going to give you the power over your sinful heart, that's where it's, that's where it's gone left field. Right? That's what Paul's saying. And he's making a compelling argument for this. And it really, I believe, is where we struggle. We put ourselves into program after program. We recite thing after thing. We, we uh, get into accountability groups. And all those things have a certain level of help. 
but truly they pale in comparison to what Christ will do. Now, when Christ is that priority, and we couple Christ with some of that help, some of that practical help, that's a good marriage. That's a good marriage. So hear me clearly on that. I'm not necessarily um, espousing a disdain for accountability or, or, or those levels. We need that. But when it's only that, and the power of Christ is left off, Paul says, you've been disqualified. You'll never succeed. You'll never succeed. External practices, beware of human precepts and teaching. So I want to give you a little bit of a taste because we're going to get into the specifics here. What was the law? If Paul is talking about the fact that that there are individuals who espouse self-made religion and they're trying to twist the law for their advantage and tell you, don't touch this, don't eat that, don't taste this, because they want to control you, but in fact it disqualifies you, maybe we should look at what that law is because it could get a little confusing. Are we saying, Pastor, that the law no longer is of any value? No. The law served a purpose. The law helps us understand God's, God's holiness, God's standard. But it really was temporary and it really was incomplete. Now we take what we know from the law and we see it lived out in Christ and we live according to the gospel, Christ's life, Christ leading in us according to the Holy Spirit. But let's look at how this got all messed up. So what, what was the law? Well, you had ceremonial law. And you'll find it listed in Leviticus 1, 1 through 13. I'm not going to go to these passages, but just so you know, ceremonial law had to do with worship. So Israel was directed that there was the Day of Atonement, and there were other sacrifices, and there were grain sacrifices, and burnt offerings, and on and on. And those covered certain parts and certain aspects of forgiveness for sins. Or a covering for sins. And in order to go through that process, there was a ceremony that God instructed. You're going to do it this way. You're going to cleanse this way. You're going to make sure that these things are done in a certain priority and in a certain fashion. And it was very detailed. Brothers, sisters, if we no longer do the sacrifice of bulls and goats and doves and pigeons, is there any point to be observing the ceremonial law? There's none. Let me just help you, okay, since I didn't get a response on that. No. So there's a big part of the law that doesn't apply anymore. Does that make sense? You got that? So there's one part of the law. Second, civil law, right? So civil law was created by God to govern his nation Israel. Israel was its own nation. It was a covenant relationship with God. It had come out of Egypt, yet it was going into a land of of various cultures that, that God had tried to weed out, and yet they still had pockets, and God told them, look, you need to operate this way. You need to be governed this way. This is how civility, civility will be established within my nation. And so he gave them civil laws. This is kind of like, hey, if you're... Uh, if, if your neighbor's donkey falls in your ditch and breaks its leg, you owe him two chickens or something like that. Got it? You know, on the, on the second Thursday of the new moon, you know, you need to be complete with paying back your debt or your entire field goes to the guy. You know, it, it's that kind of stuff. If, if somebody has committed a... a um, a murder, but accidentally, they can run to a what's called a refuge city, and if they are in that refuge city, you can no longer practice capital punishment. Okay, this was the civil law. So, 
here's the change. Is that this was directed specifically with that covenant with Israel. And we can see Paul even speak to this uh, in Romans. We can see Peter speak to it in Peter. That we are now underneath the government that God has established for our country. We are to live according to those rules and according to God's principles. So the practices of those specific laws for the nation of Israel, we're not the nation of Israel. But oddly enough, or interestingly enough, a lot of what we see in our laws, in our codes, in our justice system, and many other justice systems worldwide, have stemmed from this civil law, from God's law. So the civil law isn't applicable uh, necessarily as an active civil law under that covenant to Israel. So that's another part of the law that we don't necessarily look to. The moral law. Now this is, we could just go to the Ten Commandments. You guys know the Ten Commandments. It's not just regulated to the Ten Commandments. It has to do with practices of morality. Alright? So anything that speaks to morality uh, would be considered in this. And this is still something that applies. One of the reasons we know this is because Christ reemphasized, or James, or John, or Peter, reemphasized these concepts, these principles, these precepts in the New Testament. Therefore, placing value on them. Does that make sense? So the moral law, the moral part of the law, we're still observing. Not because it is the law, but because it represents who Christ is in Christ's principles and His righteousness. Lastly, the tradition of the Pharisees. This is where we land. This is where we're, we're at right here with what Paul's talking about. Am I losing you? Is this like a long like theology 401 class? Alright, you're going to wake up now. Alright? So, what happened after Daniel, and that was the last book that we were in, is that they had the Torah, which was the law. It didn't apply. There, there wasn't, it was silent. Where they lived in Babylon, they were dealing with issues that the law didn't speak to. So what would they do? How did they handle that? So what they did is they made more laws that applied to those laws. And thousands of them. Have you ever met someone that made, made up rules when you were a kid, you were playing things, and maybe you're playing hide-and-seek or freeze-tag, and... It, came, it became real obvious that they're making up enough rules that they were going to win no matter what. Okay, no matter what, when, when you're running, if I, if I look at you, you just have to freeze. I don't even have to tag you. That's, that's the way it's going to go. That's kind of what we're dealing with here. Is that the Pharisees wanted to protect the law, the, the, the Torah. And by the way, this goes from that time period of the exiles all the way up through Christ and past Christ to 200 A.D. This was when synagogues were established. This is when the office of Pharisee and Sadducee was established. And so they came up with all the minutiae, multiplied laws upon laws to what? To protect this law. None of that came from God. Not one Jot or tittle, as they say, came from God. And it was referred to as the traditions of the Pharisees. And you'll see why that's important coming up in Matthew 15, 1-9. Let's look at it this morning. 
This is a passage that reflects on Christ, one of Christ's engagements with the Pharisees. Now watch this, a little dramatic, a little soap opera, right? Okay, so you've got a lot of information. Now you're going to wake up, now you're going to get a little juicy story here. All right? So it says this, The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? There it is. Now understand this, that the Pharisees said that those traditions were on par. They were the same. There was a plurality of those traditions with the actual law of God. That if you broke any of those traditions, it was like breaking the actual, say, the Decalogue. And so he says, why are your disciples, uh, why do your disciples break the tradition of of the elders? Now I'm going to give you a little test. You ready? Let's see who has been paying attention. Like, wait a minute. First of all, you call on people to just spontaneously speak. Now you give tests in church? I'm going to the Lutheran church. All I have to do is drink there and it's over with. I just constantly pick on Lutherans. I don't know why. So he says this. They say, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. What part of the law would that have been that they added to? Remember, we had, we had civil law, ceremonial law. Who got that one? Very good. You guys get a B minus. Okay. Just because I know your type, you always sit the bell curve and you wanted the A in class. And so I just wanted to poke at you right there and get back at you. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. And he says, he answers to them and said, and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Ouch. Ouch. Counterpunch. Left cross. They threw the jab. He throws a left cross. And it's a knockout. They said, <clears throat> excuse me, um, um, Mr. Prophet, Mr. Jesus, uh, your guys aren't obeying the traditions of the elders, so they're sinning. Why do you let them do that? Can you hear us talking about other churches that way? Ooh, I just made it personal. Let's get back to Lutherans and drinking. Okay, that's easier to handle. And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus did not hold back. Because he saw the destruction and the control and the evilness that was connected to this. Remember Paul uses the word disqualified? I think when we lay down this kind of legalism that has nothing to do with God, we disenfranchise people towards God. Do we not? Churches are a mess in this area. They're a mess in this area. For God commanded to honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. And I'll explain this in a minute. And he goes on to say, he need not to honor his fathers. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching His doctrines the commandments of men. Are these not the exact words that Paul is speaking about? 
Why is Paul saying it? It's because he's probably thinking about this exact situation that would have been relayed to him. Paul, being a Pharisee, would have known this. So what, 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 what happened here? Is that Jesus uses, because they're trying to use the law, they're trying to use the tradition, so Jesus trumps them. And he says, you know what, I'm going to give you a commandment of God, not a tradition of the elders. I'm going to give you a commandment of God. And he says, honor your father and mother. And you guys are hypocrites because, you know, when, when people receive something and they should be taking care of their parents, you require them to give it to you so you can misuse it here in the temple. And you say that that is appropriate, so you're actually stealing from what God desires for their families in, in honoring their father and mother. You hypocrite. Fascinating. Fascinating how the law gets turned around and twisted in the traditions of men become paramount or equal with God's desire for His people and then how we love to hold on to that and use it to control and regulate people because it's easier that way. Let me move through this. Internal practices, godly precepts and teaching, this is the substance, not the shadow. The law is the shadow. The traditions of the elders, the tradition of men's was the shadow. And so now you have godly precepts and teachings. What do those do for you? Well, Paul says in verse 19, it promotes unity and growth. That's a little bit different than what was happening with the Pharisees, which was control and discouragement and disqualifying, right? It's the substance versus the shadow. Verse 17, Paul uses these two words specifically to say you can either go for something that is here, it's real, it has substance, or you can just hang out in the shadows and observe. Lastly, we see faith working through love. Galatians 5, 6-9 speaks to this, and we talked about it last week. So let's get into our illustration this morning. And uh, as we uh, raise a pint to... Uh, this issue of, is it lawful? Is it godly? What do we do with this thing of drinking? Now you're all just woke up, right? You're like, we're past the theology. I'm into the practice. Here we go. Well, so let's look at our passage. That's why we're looking at this. And that's why we're using this as an illustration. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh what are these look back reference to the previous verse when he says these have no what these indeed have an appearance of wisdom but they are powerless what are these And what were the, there's three specific regulations he lists. Do not, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's the these. Now we have our own list that we've grown up. I grew up with this one. I was in a very conservative Baptist church when I grew up. And we had one gentleman that had a tattoo on his wrist. He had been in the Navy. And uh, that kept him from being a leader in the church. And yet he was one of the most pious men in the entire church. Uh, you, if you did drink anything, you didn't let people know that you drank. And if you danced thinking about drinking, you were excommunicated. Okay? It was just bottom line. That's what I grew up in. And it was never explained why. It just was. 
It just was. And I remember people within the church talking at lunches about how they saw other people from other churches smoking or they saw other people from other churches drinking. And because of that, they would never step a foot inside that church. L-O-T-P. L-O-T-P. Let me give you another verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. Brothers, sisters, that is what I want you to walk away with. Uh, Of all that we'll talk about in this two-part series, this is what you need to walk away with. This is the thought. And and why, why, why does he care about eating or drinking? Because it had to do with the context of this verse that there was an argument about do we eat meat that is in the market, that that is there, that people are buying as sacrificial uh, meat to idols. And he says, if you know it's been sacrificed to an idol, don't eat it. Hold on to, to your testimony to the Lord. You are not under any compulsion to do that because it has been sacrificed. And you don't want to deviate into this thing of participating. And he says, you cannot participate at the table of God and participate at the table of a demon. You can't do, the, you can't do both. But that's very different than those that want to throw on more rules, more traditions, and say, don't even buy meat from that market because somebody came over and bought meat there and is sacrificing it to idols. He says, you're free to eat. You're free to drink. And so that's, the church was all consumed about, well, what do we do? Do, do we drink this or do we eat that? And he says, when it comes to these issues, whatever you do, just do to the glory of God. That's it. So let's look at something. I'm going to ask you a question. Don't, I'm just going to tell you something. Don't think about pink elephants. Don't think about pink elephants. What are you doing? There's no way you cannot think about pink elephants. I, I thought that this, uh, this was pretty funny. Um, I don't know where it came from, and I don't know how I ended up going that far back there. Um, and I don't know where we got the whole idea that once you're drunk, you see pink elephants. But was that like from Winnie the Pooh? You've been hitting the honey a little too heavy or something? I don't, that was heffalumps and woozles or something. I don't know. All that stuff was really weird anyway. But uh, don't think about pink elephants. Well, so why do I tell you that? Because the challenge here is when we talk about things like don't eat or drink, let's use this idea of beer, and what I grew up with was people who drink beer are sinners, all right? And I already told you, that's, that's this language of the Pharisees. Yet I would say, yes, they are sinners. Not because they're drinking beer, but because people are sinners because we lust, because we lie, because we, we do this, that, and the other. And I don't believe that there is Scripture that clearly defines, clearly defines that if you drink anything that has an ounce of alcohol in it, that you are now sinning. Because that has never been, as I have studied the Scriptures and I've listened to dozens of pastors, preachers, scholars on this subject, I've never been convinced that there is clear Scripture that says, Thou shalt not drink alcohol. Alright, so Jesus drank wine. We sang this song, Water He Turned Into What? Now, if you're a person that says, you got to abstain because any kind of drink is not godly. 
you got a big problem. And this verse is a big issue. Because Jesus turns water into wine. And I know that the, the argument on that level is, well, it wasn't really wine like we have today. You know, there are scholars that think it was actually stronger than, than what we have today. And I would simply say this to those who are those kinds of scholars, that they're arguing from presuppositionalism. And the challenge that you have is this. All that means, all that means is that they're arguing from a bias. They have a bias. And they want to interpret Scripture according to that bias. The challenge here is this, is it the, the grammar, the words define water, and they define something different than water. Okay, so it, it's, they're not the same thing. He transformed it from one thing to the other. And if he's going to do that, I would think that he doesn't have a disparaging attitude towards the element itself. Okay, so there's one idea. Proverbs 23, 20 through 21. Let's turn there. Proverbs 23, and these Pharisees knew this verse, and they get into it with Jesus, but I want you to see the verse before we actually recite it. And don't worry, we'll be finishing up quickly so you all can go get a beer. That part can be erased off the recording. 23, uh, verses 20 through 21. And the writer says this, Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. Kind of a negative thing, right? That the writer of Proverbs is writing about these two areas of, of drinking to excess and eating to excess. And by the way, remember verse 23, which is really the challenge that what we're trying to do is have power against those things that are indulgences of the flesh. Let's get back to the original thought. And he's saying all of these traditions and all of these rules are powerless. They're precious, but they're powerless against the indulgences of the flesh. So here you see two indulgences. Excess. So let's turn to Luke, shall we? Luke 7. Turn to Luke 7 and let's see what the language of the Pharisees Sounds like, again, Luke seven, thirty-four. I don't know if I have... No, I don't have the, the verse up there. And it says this. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all of her children. Do you know the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a drunkard? That they were quoting Proverbs 20 in this process. And Jesus says, I hear what you're saying. You're saying, look, he's not like John the Baptist who abstained from wine, who abstained from meat, who, who wore these certain clothes. Why aren't you like him? Because that certainly fits our, our program. And Jesus says, I hear what you're saying. He is a drunkard and a glutton. He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And then he says what? He says, justice will be shown through his children. In other words, this, watch what happens through my work, through my effort, and see if it is not validated by its power. Does that mean Jesus was drunk? No, it doesn't. It means that the Pharisees and the language of the Pharisees was so over the top 
and so evil and so accusatory that they were bold enough to accuse Jesus of these things. We know in Ephesians 5.18 it says that drunkenness is forbidden. We shouldn't evacuate that. Let's look at it real quickly. Evacuate it. Pass it by too quickly. Because there's something that's very interesting here in comparison to the Colossians 2 passage. Verse 18 says what? It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now we hear in verse 23 of Colossians this same idea. That this idea of indulgence and this word filled here, believe it or not, they are very similar in the Greek. It's a nuance. They come from the same primary word, which means to be satisfied, which means to be filled up. And what, what Paul does here in, verse, in, in Colossians 2.23 is he says, you, you want to be filled and all the way up with fleshly desires. You're never going to be satisfied. Actually, you want to work against this, and these guys are giving you these rules that are powerless against this indulgence, this filling up of the fleshly desires. And this is what we're working against. And what does Jesus say? Don't be drunk. Or Paul says this. Don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. Same thing. Be indulged with the Spirit. Let the Spirit guide you. He didn't say let the law guide you. He said let the Spirit guide you. Prefer holiness and live in the freedom of Christ. What is the answer to all of these things? We just used two examples, beers and tattoos because that's kind of the relative hot button in churches if you're really going to get to it, right? And with a little bit of sarcasm. Prefer holiness and live for freedom in Christ. I'm going to close with these thoughts. 1 Corinthians 10, 23-33 and Galatians 5.13. Galatians 5.13, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. What do we do when it comes to these things of thou shalt not and, and accusing someone of not being Christ-like because of their choices and their behaviors? Folks, God has a standard for His people. But you're never going to realize that standard because of a set of rules. They're insufficient. They're powerless. They don't work. It is the Spirit working through you that will refine you and move you more and more and transfer you more and more into the likeness of Christ. And when we focus on that, not pink elephants. Do you understand what I mean by this? Just in in, in closing. You see, if I'm just continually focused on the do-nots and the do-nots and the do-nots, where's my mind? My mind is on the regulations. It's not on life. It's not on Christ. I'm consumed with all the do-nots. John Newton was consumed with the do-nots and it wasn't until he focused on grace that he got it and he was set free. That's what Paul's trying to say. To the church, stop disqualifying yourself by living by these human traditions that are not meant to be God's standard in your life. Are you free to get a tattoo? You should pray about it. And I would encourage you to look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. And if God purposefully decides and communicates to you that you should do that for His purposes, 
I will simply say that the disciples were really disturbed that Jesus was talking to the Samaritan woman because it wasn't appropriate. But God had his purposes in that. This is not an issue of salvation. This is not an issue of grace and mercy in life. It's something that we blow up way too big. When it comes to alcohol, do you have the freedom to drink or not drink? You need to determine that according to the Scriptures, not according to human tradition. What we do know in Scriptures is that you're not supposed to be drunk. Unequivocally, you're not supposed to be drunk. So here's the big question. What does your pastor do? Right? Pastor, just tell us what you do. You know the folly of that, right? You know, if I tell you what my view is, you know the folly of that. Hopefully, the past 40 minutes have really ascribed the fact that I dare not tell you. You can ask me privately. I could care less. I'll tell you. But in an authoritative stance, would I not then be a hypocrite? You don't need to know what my view is. You need to know Christ's view. That's it. Look at this. I'm going to give you some breakdown. We saw this last week. Live in the substance, not the shadow. Set your mind on Christ. What do we do with all this? How do we figure out what God's standard is then? If we're not supposed to listen to all the do nots, you're going to get it starting next week. We're going to go into chapter 3, and Paul does it. He gets right into it. So it's going to be really exciting. He is the new temple. We don't worship at, at a temple with all these appropriateness and these patterns. He's the new temple. He often requires more than what the law required. And he transcends all law and the elemental spirits. Romans 8, 9-11 gives us a great view of this. It says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. What does all that say and how does that work with this subject? It's the idea that we are now to walk in the Spirit. That our life, our spiritual life, and our connection with God is not regulated by a group of laws. It's magnified through following and seeking Jesus Christ that that is life. If you have any questions pertaining to the two illustrations I used, please email me, talk with me later. Um, I will say this. is uh, I have a, another website. I didn't have time last week to mention it. Uh, all the young people in the room, you're considering a tattoo. Email me. Text me. Ask for the, the website address for this pastor in Santa Cruz. He has 10 great questions you should go through if you're ever considering these, these situations or these decisions, when it comes to uh, drinking, or any of these things, any of these things, you're under our laws, the laws of the nation, the laws of your parents, honoring your parents, and, and, and honoring your father and mother. And again, I refer you back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. That we are not to be conformed to the pattern of this world. But we are to what? We're to be transformed. We're to shine. Remember last week I said that if you have to say what's internal with ink, you're probably missing the point. We should be able to say what Christ has on our heart 
through our own lives. That's more powerful. But to write it down in, and, and permanently write it down smacks interestingly of what? The law. And how powerless the law truly is. See, anybody can write anything on their skin. But what are we doing in our lives and in our hearts? So let's make it about glorifying God and the freedom that comes with that. Amen? Amen. Let me close in prayer. And we're going to keep it light from now on. I think we're going to preach on TV series or something. I don't know. Politics. Yeah, that's what we'll do. Cover politics next week. Guest speaker. All right. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time today in the Word. And I pray that as, as it can get a little heady and a little challenging, Father, this is an area that affects us all every single day. I pray that our heart's conviction is that we pursue a life in Christ and that in all that we do, in word or deed, we do to the glory of God. And all things will work themselves out. When we worship you and we don't worship ourselves, all things work themselves out. So Father, put that heart in us. Not a regulation of do's and don'ts. Not trying to not think about pink elephants. But Father, help us to keep you at the forefront of our mind that we would seek to please you and that would be the priority. Regardless. And then give us the love and the freedom and the liberty that is in Christ to cherish and love all those around us. And to not hold to a a sense of legalism that is powerless and has no purpose and disqualifies us. To you be the glory, Father. Accept our offerings today. Use them for your glory. Multiply them. Let them honor you. In your name we pray. Amen.